Jerusalem was in an uproar. There was a man who was claiming to be king, who was running around uh, getting things excited. And folks didn't know exactly what to think about it, and there was lots of turmoil. There was someone else who was claiming to be king. And so uh, he had thrown a party and had all of his buddies who were going to support him uh, in Jerusalem. And David decided to bring the first man who, who thought that he was King Solomon and bring him and put him on the equivalent in that time of Air Force One, a donkey, and lead him through the gates of Jerusalem to signify that this is the king. And so we read in the book of 1 Kings, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benai the son of Jehoadoah. And they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own donkey, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. And then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. And so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Ben-Hai the son of Jehadoah, and the, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's donkey and brought him into Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live the king! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. And so the other son of David that was having his party to celebrate being king, they all heard the noise and sent somebody to find out what it was. And the text says that one by one, they just kind of slid away from the party. And so that was a part of the Jewish tradition. That was a part of their national story. You know, every country, we as Americans, we have things in our natural, national story that we all know. We could all sit around and we remember the story of the British are coming, the British are coming, right? Paul Revere rode through the night. We know how Betsy Ross sat and, and made the first flag for George Washington. We know how uh, throughout the history, I, I know uh, one of my favorite stories in our national tale is about Teddy Roosevelt, who was getting up to make a speech before he was elected for his second time as president, and a gunman came and shot him in the chest. And he still gave the speech. Hour and a half long. In fact, his notes for his speech were so thick that the bullet was slowed down by his notes, and so he sat there and apologized for the blood on his waistcoat. We have stories like that in the American tale. Oftentimes, politicians try to use those and twist them, and they'll bring in allusions to Valley Forge and, and all of that. But we know what those stories are. And it doesn't take a lot for someone to be able to conjure up those stories from our nation's founding. It's the same thing was going on in Israel. That Solomon was in the middle of a struggle for kingship, and David getting the high priest and Nathan the prophet to lead him into Jerusalem on the back of his donkey was when the nation said, Solomon is our king. The rightful heir and king of Israel made a triumphant entrance into Jerusalem and every Jewish kid that grew up in the first century would have known that story. You know, it's, and it's curious to us 
as we read in the New Testament that there's so much emphasis placed on the donkey. In fact, every Palm Sunday, I preach the same sermon title. In fact, Brian on Monday said, so I guess you're preaching the same sermon. I'm like, well, yeah, it's Palm Sunday. I mean, it's pre-written. And I always say, what's the deal with the donkey is the title of the sermon. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew in chapter 21, Luke in chapter 19, John in chapter 12, and then Mark here in chapter 11 all tell the same story and give us lots of information about the donkey. And we read about it and go, why do we have so much detail about a donkey? Because a donkey is not a glamorous critter. I uh, have told just about every Palm Sunday, I guess, tell the story of the fact that we had a donkey uh, at the farm that we, we owned. His name was Gray because Emily got to name him, and she had a Winnie the Pooh set, and when you pushed the key that was Eeyore would pop up, he would say, Gray. And so the donkey's name was Gray because Emily wasn't a very bright child at that age. And so we had a donkey. His name was Gray, and, and uh, Gray was mean, now, if Emily or Molly walked out with a brush, the donkey would walk up and let them brush him, and he would act like it was the greatest thing in the world. But if I walked out, he'd lay those ears back on his head, and he would smile real big at me. And that wasn't him saying that he loved me. <laughs> and multiple times, that donkey would, uh, I would be doing something, and I would hear the air part by my head as that donkey had a well-placed hoof in my direction. They are not uh, glamorous at all. They look silly. But, Solomon coming in on a donkey would have been a part of the national tale. That would have been a part of the story that they told. And so that donkey would have had huge significance to the Jewish people. And so, on this morning, on this day, Jesus came in on a donkey. Now, the background is in Zechariah. With everyone knowing that background, Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall rule from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. And so, a part of the prophecy was, just like Solomon had come in on the foal of a donkey, the new king, the Messiah, was going to come into Jerusalem. Following that same path that Solomon had followed, he would come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Everybody knew it. It was tales that were told in school. I'm sure that the kids colored pictures of donkeys. They knew what was coming. Now, this verse says that this king will overthrow all of the Israel's enemies. Everybody in that crowd thought that what Jesus was bringing was going to be victory over the Romans that were oppressing them, over all of their enemies all around. Israel was literally at a crossing point where nations had fought across her land for millennia. That when the Syrians would come down, the Egyptians would come up, where they met is downtown Jerusalem. And they needed a king that could be victor over all the enemies all around them. This verse in Zechariah says that that's the case. The battle bows cut off. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth. But prophecies are rarely fulfilled the way we think they are. You know, the same thing had happened in that temple that Jesus would be headed toward, that tomorrow where he would tump over the tables and he would cast out the money changers. That temple... You know, it replaced the temple that that first king that we heard about Solomon had built. He built a temple that was spectacular. It was beautiful. As you walked up to that temple, it had a huge bronze. In fact, they didn't call it a bowl. They called it a sea. It was so big. And this bronze sea sat on the back of oxen that were bronze. It was just overpowering in its appearance. Solomon had built a temple that was filled with gold and marble. The beauty of that temple was unsurpassed. So much so that when the Israelites, knowing that God had warned them, knowing that God had said to them, if you don't obey me, I will destroy you, they thought, well, the temple of God, the temple of God, God's never going to destroy his temple. And he did. God did what he said he would do. And that temple was destroyed. Later, as the new temple foundations were being laid, we read, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people couldn't distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. That old temple was desolated. And this new temple's being built. And the old men who remembered the beauty of the old temple when they saw how pathetic this new temple was going to be, they cried. Can't even approach Solomon's temple. But the new men, the, the young men, the men who hadn't seen that old temple, they were just excited that God was going to do something. And so they shouted for joy. And one of the most pathetic scenes we have painted in the Bible is the sound of joy and the sound of weeping mingling so that you couldn't distinguish the two. Haggai, a prophet, wanted to tell them to keep building, and so he prophesied, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake out the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake out all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, this house, the new temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now they thought that this prophecy meant that the new temple was going to be built up and it was going to be more magnificent than Solomon's. They thought that it was going to be something that would put Solomon's temple to shame because that's what the prophet said. And yet, in the temp- Solomon's temple, when you walked into the holies of holies, not that you would, but you went past those curtains, there was the Ark of the Covenant that sat there that represented the authority and the power of God. In this new temple, if you walked into the holies of holies, you walked into an empty room. The Ark of the Covenant had been lost. After Solomon dedicated the first temple, literally, the Shekinah glory of God came and hovered over the ark so that you could see it from a distance. God's presence itself hovered there in between the wings of the ark of the covenant. 
Again, in this new temple, if you look past the curtain into the holies of holies, it was just a dusty, empty room. I actually asked a rabbi recently, during this period, where did the priest put the blood? Because they still did the sacrifice where they sacrificed a bull and they sacrificed a goat. And the law prescribes that once a year that mingled blood of a bull and goat would be carried in and sprinkled onto the Holy of Holies. And so I asked him, during the, the second temple period, what did they do with the blood? He said they just put it on the floor. There was no ark there. So how could Haggai's prophecy be true? How could it be that that second temple's glory would be greater than the first? How could it possibly be that peace would be brought to the nations from that second temple? Herod, not even a Jew, fulfilled the first part where the money of the nations was shaken out. He rebuilt that second temple. He made it fancy, but its glory did not surpass. How we read this prophecy being fulfilled is how no one expected it. How no one would have saw it. In Luke chapter 2, they, we read, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the con consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people of Israel. Where before God's Shekinah glory came in and was only accessible by the high priest once a year, now the glory of God came in the form of a baby that was accessible to us all. Now God's glory, God Himself, was in the form of a man that we could see and touch, that could be tempted in every way just like us. So into this second temple became, came God's glory much more because it was accessible. And He would come in and bring peace. Not just the absence of war, but He and He alone can be, bring peace to the storms that trouble your life. He can bring peace in a way that no warrior king ever could. I've stood in hospital rooms as people went to meet their maker and that peace washed over them. I've been at accident scenes and prayed for people and watched that peace crash into the moment. I sat in funeral homes as people wept and seen the comfort of God waft across the room. Jesus brings peace like no other. And God's glory came in a way that no one expected. And so when this king came into Jerusalem, it happened like no one expected. It happened the way it was prophesied, but not in the way they expected because he came not to defeat Rome. He came to defeat death. And he came to defeat sin. And he came to defeat our own arrogance and uplifted fist into the face of God. He came to bring real victory and real peace. So as he came in, the people took their palm branches. You know, in Christian 
tradition for now um, at least a thousand years we know we've done in churches we've um, we've done this with palm branches like the kids did today where we hold out the palm branches and we celebrate about the palm branches and they took the palm branches after they shook them in the air and said Hosanna Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and they they laid it out to make his path smooth and so we celebrate this day with palm branches. In fact, I went to Lowe's yesterday to buy the palm trees that we could cut the branches off of for the kids to bring in here. And there were two palm trees in that whole store. It's like every Baptist church in Etowah County had realized at the last minute, oh, wow, we got to get some palm trees. But what the Pharisees were upset about weren't the palm branches. The Pharisees were upset about what people said. They were proclaiming just like... Solomon had been proclaimed as the king. They were proclaiming that he was the king. But they also said what we sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that word Hosanna in Jewish liturgy means God save us. And they, as they shouted that, were proclaiming Jesus' kingship and the fact that he brought salvation in his hand. And the Pharisees said, shut these people up. And Jesus said, if they don't cry out, even the rocks would cry out. Because this had been prophesied. This had been foretold. And God always does what he says he would do. Brian and I were laughing as we were talking about this, how just about every worship leader I've ever read has at some point or the other said, y'all need to, you know, when we're having those kind of Sunday mornings where nobody's singing, y'all need to sing because if you don't, then even the rocks are going to cry out. You ever heard a song guy say that? Those music guys love to go to that one. And uh, we preachers have our own that we go to, I can assure you of that as well. Uh, But what Jesus was not, wasn't saying that at just any time. He was saying, on this day that was prophesied, that when the king came in, there would be shouting out, that if the people held their voice, God would make the rocks cry out because God always does what he said he would do. God always fulfills his prophecy. And so on that day, the people shouted out just like had been prophesied, and they proclaimed that he was king and that he was the salvation of God. They shouted out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's not a phrase that was just pulled out of the air. That's not something that we hadn't seen before. Or that the kids in first century Jerusalem hadn't had on their coloring sheet. In Psalm 118, we read, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord that the righteous shall enter through. The stone that the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Does that sound familiar? 
That's the day. Today, the day that we celebrate. That's the day that the psalmist is talking about that God made. We should rejoice because that's the day that Jesus was, was the first proclaimed king. Remember how in Jesus' ministry he kept saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent, John said. For the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at the door. All of them were prophesying what was coming, and it came on that day. That was the first day of the kingdom of God, as the people of Israel said. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't know what would have happened with human history had what they cried that day been the final word, had they made Jesus king, had Jerusalem accepted its rightful heir. I don't know. But we know that they didn't. And that even as Jesus was coming in, fulfilling prophecy on the back of a donkey, there were other leaders in the church in, in the place that were plotting. This man must die. God Himself came among humanity. And we beheld him and said, kill it. And so this week, as you go through Holy Week, and you can find a hundred of them online, find a resource and see what's happening every day. We know what happens Monday. We know what happened Tuesday. We know what happened Wednesday. Tomorrow, Jesus will cleanse the temple. Tomorrow, Jesus will look at a fig tree and say, because it didn't have any fruit, you'll never bear fruit again. And his disciples just the next day saw it withered and dying. We know what Jesus would go through. And we know that on Monday, Thursday, just five days from today, that Jesus would be in that upper room with his disciples. They would celebrate the Passover. Jesus would stand in front of them and break that bread. I love the symbolism that he broke it. The disciples didn't break the bread. The Roman soldiers didn't come in and break the bread. Jesus broke the bread and he said, this bread is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, nobody took his life. He laid it down freely. He took up that wine and he said, this is my blood, which represents the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he left that upper room, went out to Gethsemane to pray. And in humanity's darkest hour, the temple guards came. Jesus said, you come out like you're trying to arrest a thief. Wasn't I just in the temple yesterday? And they bound him and they carried him before mock court after mock court. Even Caesar's representative said, I find nothing wrong with this guy. And yet the same crowd that yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna now is yelling out, Crucify him! Kill him! And if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at our own heart, we can hear our own voices in that crowd. And then he was carried out of the gates of the city, just like that goat that had to be sacrificed, just like every wicked sinner the law tells us has to be carried outside of the gates. He was carried outside of the gates. He was nailed to a cross. 
and lifted up between heaven and earth. In His shame, in His nakedness, in His brokenness, He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, all of the shame that we deserve, all of the punishment that we deserve, all of the wrath of God that I deserve was poured out on Him. And He took it in my place. Instead of me, it was Him on the cross. And at that moment, Jesus was treated by the Father like a rapist, like a liar, like a thief, like a twisted, broken politician, like some loser with pornography on his computer. He was treated like the most vile, wicked of sinners that there were by the Father. And he hung there. And he took it. And he drained the cup of the wrath of God. And then he proclaimed the most freeing words ever uttered in human history. It is finished. It's complete. There is no more wrath. There is no more punishment. There is no more shame. So if you've depended on the work that Jesus did on the cross, don't you dare pick that wrath back up. Because he took it all. And next week, tune in next week, same bad time, same bad channel. This week we had a dear brother, uh, a man who was the Sunday school director in this church for years, um, who most of you know and love, David Willingham, pass away. I'm going to leave here and, and go do his funeral. And some funerals are really hard to do. Um, I think I've, I've shared with you guys at one point or the other, just over the course of my ministry, you end up doing funerals where people are mean, you do funerals where people were nasty, and you have to, you can't say that, right, during the funeral. Um, sometimes you want to. So, and then some funerals are easy. David and I had multiple conversations over the course of the last year or so about what he wanted me to say at his funeral. He wrote his own funeral. But because he trusted fully in what Jesus did on the cross, I can say with all assurance, I can point to that casket and say, that ain't David. That last Wednesday night, late in the evening, that when David died, it was not him just going into some blackness. In fact, Paul said that we see through a glass darkly, murkily. We don't quite see what's going on in the spirit realm and what's going on around us. And all of a sudden, David's eyes were opened. He could see for the first time in his existence. 
The Bible tells us in the story of the rich man and Lazarus that when Lazarus died, the angels were there to carry him into Abraham's bosom. That when David opened his eyes and saw with his new spiritual eyes, he had some angels there that said, come on, let's go home. And that that is going to be buried in weakness will be raised in power. That that will be buried in dishonor will be raised in honor. And why that can happen is because the greatest enemy that we have, an enemy that will defeat us all, every person in this room will go up against death at some point in your life. Every person in this room at some point will breathe your last breath. Your old heart will give its last twitch. It will be over. But because Jesus died on that cross, and because, I'm going to go ahead and tell the punchline, three days later, he got up out of that grave. He fulfilled the prophecy, and the greatest enemy that mankind has ever faced was defeated. And now he's a defeated foe. Death has no power over us. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because at the cross, Jesus defeated that old enemy. And so he came in. Jesus came into this city triumphant. And the prophecy was twisted. Our expectations, I should say, was twisted. We thought he was just coming to defeat a Roman foe. They thought that he was just coming to defeat the problems that they had around him. Little did they know that when Jesus would be finished, he would defeat death and hell itself. Lord, as we come before you this morning, celebrating that this is the day that the Lord has made, oh God, help us rejoice and be glad in it. Help us to look to this day. Lord, when we're down and it seems like Everything's gone wrong. God, I pray that you would help us to look to this day when Jesus began the march that would allow him to triumph over our worst enemies. God, I pray that this day would be sweet in our thoughts and in our mind. God, I pray that we as believers in the resurrected Christ would remember this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.